Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Live to Tape podcast. We're reading South Sea Tales by Jack London. And we are continuing uh, with a new story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a wheezing, guzzling Scotchman, and he drowned his whiskey neat, beginning with his first knot punctually at six in the morning, and thereafter repeating it at regular intervals throughout the day until bedtime, which was usually midnight. He slept but five hours out of the twenty-four, and for the remaining nineteen hours he was quietly and decently drunk. During the eight weeks I spent with him on Allah Atoll, I never saw him draw a sober breath. In fact, his sleep was so short that he never had time to sober up. It was the most beautiful and orderly perennial drunk I have ever observed. McAllister was his name. He was an old man, and very shaky on his pins. He had a tremble with a palsy, especially noticeable when he poured his whiskey, though I never knew him to spill a drop. He had been twenty-eight years in Malaysia, ranging from the German New Guinea to the German Solomons, and so thoroughly had he become identified with that portion of the world that he habitually spoke in that bastard lingo called Bulchdemir, which is a conversation with me. Sun he come up meant sunrise, Kali he stop meant dinner was served, and belly long me walk about meant he was sick at his stomach. He was a small man and a withered one, burned inside and out by ardent spirits and ardent sun. He was a cinder, a bit of a clinker of a man, a little animated clinker, not yet quite cold, that moves stiffly by the starts and jerks like an automation. A gust of wind would have blown him away. He weighed ninety pounds. But the immense thing about him was the power which he ruled. Alu Atoll was one hundred and forty miles in circumference, once sterned by compass course in its lagoon, it was populated by five thousand Polynesians, all strapping men and women, many of them standing six feet in height and weighing a couple hundred pounds. Alu was two hundred and fifty miles from the nearest land, twice a year a little schooner called to collect copra. The one white man on Alugu was McAllister, pretty petty trader and unintermittent guzzler, and he was ruled and he ruled along and its six thousand savages with an iron hand. He said, Come and they came, go and they went. They never questioned his will nor judgment. He was a cantankerous as only an aged Scotchman can be, and interfered continually in their personal affairs. When Nagru, the king's daughter, wanted to marry Hanu from the older end of the atoll, her father said yes, but McAllister said no, and the marriage never came off. When the king wanted to buy a certain islet in the lagoon from the chief priest, McAllister said no. The king was in debt to the company to the tune of 180,000 coconuts. Until that was paid, he not to spend a single coconut on anything else. And yet the king and his people did not love McAllister 
in truth they hated him horribly. And to my knowledge, the whole population, with the priest at the head, tried vainly for three months to pray him to death. The devil's devil that he sent after him were all inspiring, but McAllister did not believe in the devil devils. They were without power over him. With drunken Scotchmen, all signs fail. They gathered up scraps of food which had touched his lips, an empty whiskey bottle, a coconut from which he had drunk, and even his spittle, and performed all kinds of devil trees over them. But McAllister lived on. His health was superb. He never caught fever, nor coughs, nor colds. Dysentery passed him by, and the malignant ulcers and vile skin disease that attacks blacks and whites alike, in a climate never fastened upon him. He must have been so saturated with alcohol as to defy the lodgment of germs. I used to imagine them all falling to the ground in a shower of microscopic cylinders, cinders, as fast as they entered his whiskey-soda aura. But no one loved him, not even germs, while he was loved only whiskey, and still he lived. I was puzzled. I could not understand six thousand natives putting up with that withered shrimp of a tyrant. It was a miracle that he had not died suddenly long since. Unlike the cowardly Malaysians, the people were high-stomached and warlike. In a big graveyard, at the head of the feet of the graves, were relics of a past singularly history, bubbled spades, rusty old bayonets and cutlasses, copper bolts, rudder irons, harpoons, bomb guns, bricks that could have come from nowhere but a whaler's trying-out furnace, and old brass pieces of 16th century that verified the traditions of the early Spanish navigators. Ship after ship had come to grief on Olang, not thirty years before. The whaler Benadere, running into the lagoon for repairs, had been cut off with all hands. In similar fashion had the crew of the gasket, a sandalwood trader, perished. There were a big French bark, and two loon reclaimed off the atoll, which the islanders boarded after a sharp tussle and wrecked in the Lillibu passage, the captain and a handful of sailors escaping in longboat. Then there was the Spanish pieces, which told of the loss of one of the early explorers, all this of the vessels named in the matter of history, and to be found in the South Pacific sailing directory, but that there was other history unwritten, I was yet to learn. In the meantime, I puzzled why six thousand primitive savages let one degenerate Scot despot live. One hot afternoon, McAllister and I were sat on the veranda, looking over the lagoon, with all its wonder of jeweled colors, at our backs across the hundred yards of palm-studded sand. The outer surf roared on the reef. It was dreadfully warm. We were in four degrees south latitude, and the sun was directly overhead. Having crossed the line a few days before on its journey south, there was no wind, not even a catspaw. The season of the southeast trade was drawing to an early close, and the northwest monsoon had not yet begun to blow. They cannot dance worth a damn, said McAllister. I had happened to mention that the Polynesian dances were superior to the pow-pound, and this McAllister had denied for no other reason than his cantankerousness, but it was too hot to argue, and I said nothing. Besides, I had never seen the Olong people dance. 
I'll prove it to you, he announced, beckoning to the black new Hanover boy, a labor recruit who served as cook and general house servant. Hey, you boy, you tell him one fella king come along me. The boy departed, and back came the prime minister, perturbed, ill at ease, and grellous with apologies, apologetic explanation. In short, the king slept and was not to be disturbed. King, he plenty strong fellow asleep, was his final sentence. McAllister was in such a rage that the prime minister incontinently fled to return with the king himself. They were a magnificent pair, the king especially, who must have been all of six feet three inches in height. His features, the eagle-like quantity that is so frequently found in those in North American Indian, he had been molded and born to rule. His eyes flashed as he listened, but the rightly meekly he obeyed McAllister's command to fetch a couple hundred of the best dancers, male and female, in the village. And dance they did for two mortal hours under that boiling sun. They did not love him for it, and a little he cared, in the end dismissing them with abuse and sneers. The abject civility of those magnificent savages was terribly frightening. How could it be? What was the secret of his rule? More and more I puzzled as the days went by, and though I observed perpetual examples of undisputed sovereignty, never a clue was to how it was. One day I happened to speak of my disappointment in the failing to trade for a beautiful pair of orange cowries. The pair was worth five pounds in Sydney, if it was worth a cent. I had offered two hundred sticks of tobacco to the owner, who had held out for three hundred. When I casually mentioned the situation, McAllister immediately sent for the man, took the shells from him, and turned them over to me. Fifty sticks were all he permitted me to pay for them. The man accepted the tobacco, and seemed overjoyed at getting off so easily. As for me, I resolved to keep a brittle on my tongue in the future, and still I mulled over the secret of McAllister's power. I even went to the extent of asking him directly, but all he did was to cock one eye, look wise, and take another drink. One night I was out fishing in the lagoon with Ota, the man who had McCulted of the cowries, I asked, made up to him the additional hundred and fifty sticks, and he had come to regard me with a respect that was almost veneration, which was curious seeing that he was an old man, twice my age at least. What name you fellows kind of all the same pickany? I began on him. This fellow trade he one fellow. You fellow can take you plenty fellow too much. You fellow can take a can just mem dog meant he fight along that fella trader he no eat you fella he no gettin teeth along him what name too much fight suppose plenty fella kanaka kill him he asked he die i retorted you fella can kill him plenty fella white man a long time long time before what's your fright this fella white man yes we kill him plenty was his answer my word any amount long time before one time me young fella too much one big fella ship he stop outside wind no blow plenty calca we get em canoe plenty fella canoe we go catch em in the fellowship my word we catch big fella fight two three white men shoot kill like hell 
We no fight. We come along. We go upside. Plenty of fellow. Maybe I think fifty, five hundred. One fellow white man marry woman. Belong that sh fellowship. Never before I see a white marry. Blimey by plenty white man finish. One fellow skipper he no die. Five fellow, six fellow white men no die. Skipper he sing out. Some fellow white man he fight. Some fellow white man he lower away boat. After that altogether the side they go. Skipper he sling white Mary down. And after that they row strong fellow plenty too much. Father below me that time he strong fellow. He throw me one fellow spear. That fellow spear go in one side and that white Mary. No he stop my word. He go out the other side that fellow Mary, she finished me no fright, plenty conquered too, much no fright. Old Odo's pride had been touched, for he suddenly stripped down his lava and showed me the unmistakable scar of a bullet. Before I could speak, his line ran out suddenly, and he checked it and attempted to haul in, but found that the fish had run around the coal branch, casting a look of reproach at me for having belodged him from his watchfulness, he went over the side, fist first, turning over after he got under and following his line down to the bottom. The water was ten fathoms. I learned, leaned over and watched the play of his feet growing dim and dimmer as they were stirred the wondrous phosphorus into ghostly fires. Ten fathoms, sixty feet. It was nothing to him. An old man compared with the value of the hook and line. After that seemed five minutes, I thought I could not have been more than a minute. I saw him flaming wildly upward. He broke surface and dropped a ten-pound rock caught into the canoe, the line and hook intact, and ladder still fast in the fish's mouth. It may be, I said remorsefully, you know fight long ago. You're plenty fight now along that fellow traitor. Yes, plenty fright. He confessed with an air of dismissing the subject. For half an hour we pulled our lines and flung them out in silence. Then small fish sharks began to bite, and after losing a hook apiece, we hauled in and waited for the sharks to go their way. I speak you true, Odin broke into speech, then you have saved we fright now. I lighted up my pipe and waited, and the story that Otto had told me an atrocious Beast merch, I hear, turn into proper English. Otherwise, in the spirit and order of the narrative, the tale is as it fell from Ordis's lips. It was after that that we were very proud. We had fought many times with the strange white men who lived upon the sea, and always we had beaten them. A few of us were killed, but what was that compared with the stores of wealth and thousands and thousands kinds that we fought on the ships. And then one day, maybe twenty years ago, or twenty-five, there came a schooner right through the passage and into the lagoon. It was a large schooner with three masts. She had five white men and maybe forty boat five white men and maybe forty boats crew, black fellows from New Guinea and New Britain, and she had come to fish be dear Beach de Mir. She lay at anchor across the lagoon from here at Palu, and her boats scattered out everywhere, making camps on the beach 
where they cured and beached Demir. This made them weak by dividing them. For those who fished here and those on the schooner at Palu were fifty miles apart, and there were others farther away still. Our king and headmen held council, and I was one in the canoe, and paddled all afternoon and at night across the lagoon, bringing word to the people of Palu that in the morning we should attack the fishing camps at the one time, and that it was for them to take the schooner. We who brought the word were tried with were tired with paddling, but we took part in the attack. On the schooner were two white men, the skipper and the second mate, with half a dozen black boys. The skipper with three boys were caught on shore and killed, but the first eight of us the skipper killed with his two revolvers. We fought close together, you see, and hand grappled and at hand grapples. The noise of our fighting told the mate what was happening, and he put food and water and sail in the small dinghy, which was so small that it had no more than twelve feet long. We came down on the schooner. A thousand men covered the lagoon with our canoes. Also, we were blowing crunch shells, singing war songs, and striking the sides of the canoes with our paddles. What chance had one white man and three black boys against us? Not a chance at all, and the mate knew it. White men are hell. I have watched them much, and I am an old man now, and I understand at last why the white men have taken to themselves all the islands in the sea. It is because they are hell. Here are you in the canoe with me. You are hardly more than a boy. You are not wise, for each day I tell you many things you do not know. When I was a little pickney, I knew more about fish and the ways of fish than you know now. I am an old man, but I swim down to the bottom of the lagoon, and you cannot follow me. What are you good for anyway? I do not know, except to fight. I have never seen you fight, yet I know you are like your brothers, and that you will fight like hell. Also, you are a fool like your brothers. You do not know when you are beaten. You will fight until you die, and then it will be too late to know that you are beaten. Now behold what it, this mate did, as we came down upon him, covering the sea and blowing our crunches, he put off from the schooner in the small boat, along with three black boys, and rowed for the passage. There again was he a fool, for no wise man would put out to sea in such a small boat. The sides of it were not four inches above water, twenty canoes after him, filled with two hundred young men. We paddled five fathoms, while his black boys were rowing one fathom. He had no chance, but he was a fool. He stood up in the boat with a rifle, and he shot many times. He was not a good shot, but as we drew close, many of us were wounded and killed, but still he had no chance. I remember that all the time he was smoking a cigar. When we went forty feet away and coming fast, he dropped the rifle, lighted a stick of dynamite with the cigar, and threw it at us. He lighted another and another, and threw them at us very rapidly. Many of them I know now that he must have split the ends of fuses and stuck in a match head because they lighted so quickly. Also, the fuses were very short. Sometimes the dynamite sticks went off in the air, but most of them off in the canoes. And each time they went off in a canoe, that canoe was finished. Of the twenty canoes, the half were smashed into pieces. 
The canoe and I, I was in was also smashed, and likewise the two men who sat next to me. The dynamite fell between them. The other canoe turned away and ran. Then that mate yelled, Ah, 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 at us. Also he went at us again with his rifle, so that many were killed through the back, through the back as they fled away. All the time the black boys in the boat went on rowing. You see, I told you true, that mate was hell. Nor was that all. Before he left the schooner, he set her on fire and fixed up all the powder and dynamite so that it would go off at one time. There was a hundred of us on board trying to put out the fire, heaving up water from overside when the schooner blew up so that all we had fought for was lost to us. Besides, many more of us being killed, sometimes even now in my old age, I have bad dreams in which I hear that mate yell, Ah, 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 in a voice of thunder and yells, Ah, 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 but all those in fishing camps were killed. The mate went out of the passage in his little boat, and that was the end of him. We made sure, for how could so small a boat with four men in it live on the ocean? A month went by, and then one morning... Between two rain squalls, a schooner sailed in through our passage and dropped anchor before the village. The king and the headmen made big talk, and it was agreed that we would take the schooner in two or three days. In the meantime, as it was our custom always to appear friendly, we went off to her in canoes, bringing strings of coconuts, fowl, and pigs to trade. But when we were alongside many canoes of us, the men on board began to shoot us with rifles, and as we paddled away, I saw the mate who had gone to sea in the little boat spring upon the rail and dance and yell, Ah, ah, ah. That afternoon, they landed from the schooner in three small boats filled with white men. They were right through the village, shooting every man they saw. Also, they shot the fowls and pigs. We who were not killed got away in canoes and paddled out into the lagoon. Looking back, we could see the houses on fire. Late in the afternoon, we saw many canoes coming from Neely, which is the village near the New Passage in the northeast. They were all that were left, and like us, the village had been burned by a second schooner that had come through the Nye Passage. We stood on in darkness at the westward of Palu, but in the middle of the night, we heard women wailing, and then we ran into the big feet of the canoes. They were all that were left of Palu, likewise was in ashes, for a third schooner had come in through the Palo Passage, you see. That mate with his black boys had not been drowned. He made the Solomon Islands, and there told his brothers of what we had done to the Olang, and that his brothers had said that they would come and punish us. And there they were in three schooners, and our three villages were wiped out. And what was there for us to do? And the morning the two schooners from windward sailed down upon us in the middle of the lagoon, the trade wind was blowing fresh, and by scores of canoes they ran us down, and the rifles never ceased talking. We scattered like fish, like flying fish before the bonnet, and there were so many of us that we escaped by thousands, this way and that, to the islands on the rim of the atoll. And thereafter the schooner hunted us up and down the lagoon. In the meantime we slipped past them. But the next day, or in two days or three days, the schooners would be coming back, hunting us toward the other end of the lagoon. And so it went. 
we no longer counted nor remembered our dead. True, we were many and there were few, but what could we do? I was in one of the twenty canoes filled with men who were not afraid to die. We attacked the smallest schooner. They shot us down in heaps. They threw dynamite into our canoes. When the dynamite gave out, they threw out hot water upon us, and the rifles never ceased talking, and all those canoes were smashed, were shot as they swam away, and the mate yet danced up and down upon the cabin top and yelled, Ha, ha, ha. Every house on every smallest island was burned. Not a pig nor fowl was left alive. Our wells were defiled with the bodies of the slain, or else heaped high with coral rock. We were twenty-five thousand on Olong before three schooners came. Today we are five thousand. After the schooners left, we were but three thousand, and you shall see. At last the three schooners grew tired of chasing us back and forth, so they went, the three of them, to Nilai in the northeast, and then they drove us steady to the west. Their nine boats were in the water as well. They beat up every island as they moved along. They drove us, drove us, drove us day by day, and after night the three schooners and the nine boats made a chain of watchfulness that stretched along the lagoon from rim to rim, so that we could not escape back. They could not drive us forever that way, for the lagoon was only so large, and at last all of us that lived were driven upon the last sandbank to the west. Beyond lay the open sea. There were ten thousand of us, and we covered the sandbank from the lagoon edge to the pounding surf on the other side. No one could lie down. There was no room. We stood up. We stood hip to hip and shoulder to shoulder. Two days they kept us there, and the mate would climb up in the rigging to mock us and yell, Ah, 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 until we were sorry that we had ever harmed him or his schooner a month before. We had no food and were stood on our feet two days and nights. The little babies died, and the old and weak died, and then the wounded died, and worst of all, we had no water to quench our thirst, and for two days the sun beat down on us, and there was no shade. Many men and women waded out into the ocean and were drowned, the surf casting their bodies back on the beach, and there came a pest of flies. Some men swam to the sides of the schooners, but they were shot to the last one, and we that lived were very sorry in that our pride we tried to take the schooner with the three masts that came to fish for Beach de Mer. On the morning of the third day, the skipper of the three schooners and that mate in the small boat carried rifles, all of them, and revolvers, and they made talk. It was only that they were wary of killing us that they had stopped. They told us, and we told them that we were sorry, and that never again would we harm a white man, and in token of our submission, we poured sand upon our heads, and all the women and children set up a great wailing for water, so that for some time no man could make himself heard. Then we were told our punishment. We must fill these three schooners with copra and beach demira, as we agreed, for we water wanted water, and our hearts were broken, and we knew that we were children at fighting when we fought with white men who fought like hell. And when all the talk was finished, the mates stood up and mocked us and yelled, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
After that, we paddled away in our canoes and sought water, and for three weeks we toiled at catching beach de mer and curing it and gathering the coconuts and turning them into copra. By day and night, the smoke rose in clouds from all the beaches of the islands. O long as we paid the penalty for our wrongdoing, for in those days of death it was burned clearly on our brains that it was very wrong to harm a white man. By and by, the schooners full of copra and beach dimmer and the other trees empty of coconuts, the three skippers and the mate called us all together for a big talk, and they said that they were very glad that we had learned our lesson, and we said for the ten thousandth time that we were sorry and that we would not do it again. Also we poured sand upon our heads. Then the skipper said that it was all very well, but just to show us that they did not forgive us, they would send a devil-devil that would never forget, and that we would always remember any time we might feel like harming a white man. After that the mate mocked us, one more time, and yelled, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the six of our men, whom we thought long dead, were put ashore from one of the schooners, and the schooner hoisted their sails and ran out through the passage for the Solomons. The six men who were put ashore were the first to catch the devil-devil the skipper sent back to us. A great sickness came, I interrupted, for I recognized the trick. The schooner had measles on board, and the six prisoners had been deliberately exposed to it. Yes, a great sickness, Odie went on. It was a powerful devil-devil. The oldest man had never heard of the likes. Those of our priests that had lived, we killed because they could not overcome the devil-devil. The sickness spread. I have said that there were ten thousand of us that stood hip to hip and shoulder to shoulder on the sandbank. When the sickness left us, there were three hundred yet alive. Also, having made all our coconuts into copra, there was a famine. That fellow trader, Odie continued, he liked him that much dirt. He liked him clam. He liked he died. Kai kai. He stopped stink um, any mouth. He liked one fellow dog, one sick fellow dog, plenty fleas among, among him. He no fight long that fellow trader. We fight because he white man. We save plenty too. Much no good kill white man. That one fellow stick dog trader, he plenty bothered stop along. White man like him fight like hell. We no fight damn traitors. Sometime he made a khaki plenty cross along with Kanka want to kill me. Kanka he think devil devil and Kanka he fella mate sing out. Ay 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 and Kanka no kill him. Odi baited his hook with a piece of squid, which he tore with his teeth from the live, from the live, and squirming monster. And hook bait sank in white flames to the bottom. Shark walk about the finish, he said. I think we can catch plenty of fish. His line jerked savagely. He pulled it in rat hand under hand and landed a big gasping rock cod in the bottom of the canoe. Sun he come up. I make that. Damn fellow, traitor, one present big fellow fish, said Odi. The Heathen I met him first in a hurricane, and though he had gone through the hurricane on the same schooner, it was not until the schooner had gone to pieces under us that I first laid eyes on him. Without a doubt, I had seen him with the rest of the 
Kanka crew on board, but I had not consciously been aware of his existence, for Petit Jian was rather overcrowded. In addition to her eight or ten Kanka seamen, her white captain, mate, and supercargo, and her six captain passengers, she sailed from Ragnura with something like eighty-five deck passengers, Pomotin's Tahinian's men, women, children, each with a trade box, to say nothing of the sleepy mat blankets and cuddled bundles. The pearling season in the Promodius was over, and all hands were returning to Titi. The six of us cabin passengers were pearl buyers, two Americans, one was Akun, the whitest Chinese I have ever known, and one was German, one was a Polish Jew, and I com and I completed the half-dozen. It was a prosperous season. Not one of us had cause for complaint, nor one of the eighty-five deck passengers either. All had done well, and all were looking forward to a rest-off and a good time in Pati. Of course, the Petit Janine was overloaded. She was only seventy tons, and she had no right to carry the teeth of mob she had on board. Beneath her hatches she was crammed and jammed, with pearl shells and copra. Even the trade room was packed full with shells, and it was a miracle that the sailors could work her. There was no moving about the decks. They simply climbed back and forth along the rails. In the night time they walked upon the sleepers, who carried, who completed the deck, I swear, too deep. Oh, and there were pigs and chickens on deck, and sacks of yam, while every conceivable place was festooned with strings of drinking coconuts and bushels of bananas. On both sides between the fore and main shrouds, guys had been stretched just low enough for the for board to swing clear, and for each of these guys at least fifty bushels of bananas were suspended. It promised to be a messy passage, even if we did not make it in the two or three days that would have been required if the southeast trades had been blowing fresh, but they weren't blowing fresh. After the first five hours, the trade died away in a dozen or so gasping fans. The calm continued, and all that night, the next day, one of those glaring glassy calms, which the very thought of opening one's eyes to look at it is sufficient to cause a headache. The second day a man died, an East Islander, of the best divers that season in the lagoon. Smallpox, that is, what it was. Though how smallpox could come on board when there had been no known cases ashore, when we had left Ragnora, is beyond me. There it was, though smallpox, a man dead, and three others down on their backs. There was nothing to be done. We could not segregate the sick, nor could we care for them. We were packed like sardines, and there was nothing to do but rot and die, that is. There was nothing to do after that night that followed, the first death. On that night, the mate, the supercargo, and the Polish Jew, and four native divers sneaked away in the large whaleboat. They were never heard of again. In the morning, the captain promptly scuttled the remaining boats, and there we were. That day, there were two deaths following the day three following day three, and it jumped to eight. It was curious to see how we took it. The natives, for instance, fell into a condition of dumb stolid fear. The captain obtuse, his name was a Frenchman, became very nervous and voluble. He actually got to the twitches. He was a very large fleshy man, 
weighing at least 200 pounds, and he quickly became a faithful representation of a quivering jelly mountain of fat. The German, the two Americans, and myself brought up all the Scotch whiskey and proceeded to stay drunk. The theory was beautiful, namely, if we kept ourselves soaked with alcohol, every smallpox germ that came into contact with us would immediately be scorched to a cylinder, and the worry cur and the theory worked, though I must confess that neither Captain Ordus or Alacoon were attacked by the disease either. The Frenchman did not drink at all, and while Alacoon restricted himself to one drink daily, it was plenty it was a plenty time. The sun going into a northern decantation was straight overhead. There was no wind except for frequent squalls, which blew fiercely from five minutes to half an hour, and would up by indulging us with the rain. Each squall, the awful sun, would come out drawing clouds of steam from those soaked decks. The steam was not nice. It was a vapor of death, frightened with millions and millions of germs. We always took another drink when we saw it was up from the dead and lying, and usually we took two or three more drinks, mixing them occasionally stiff, exceptionally stiff. Also, we made it a rule to take an additional seven, several each time they hoved dead body to the sharks that swarmed about us. We had a week of it, and there was, then our whiskey gave out. It was just as well, or I should be alive now. It took a sober man to pull through what followed, as you will agree when I mention the little fact that only two men did pull through. The other man was the heathen, at least that was what I heard Captain Obtuse call him. At the moment, I first became aware of his heathen's existence, but to come back. It was at the end of the week, with the whiskey gone and the pearl buyer sober, that I happened to glance at the barometer that hung in the cabin companion's way. It normally registered in the ponderous of 29.90, and it was quite customary to see it vacillate between 29.85 and 30, or even 30.05, which to see it, as I saw, down to 29.62, was sufficient to sober the most drunken pearl buyer that ever incinerated smallpox microbes and scotch whiskey. I called Captain Obtuse's attention to it, only to be informed that he had watched it going down for several hours. There was little to do, but that little he did very well, considering the circumstances. He took off the light sails and shortened right down to the storm canvas, spread lifelines, and waited for the wind. His mistake lay in that he did after the wind came. He hove to the port tack, which the right thing to do was to south of the south of the equator, if and there was the rub, if not one, if one were not in the direction path of the hurricane, we were in the direct path. I could see that by the steady increase of wind, and that equally steady fall of the barometer. I wanted him to turn and run with the wind on the port quarter until the barometer ceased falling, and then to heave to. We argued till he was reduced to hysteria, but the budge, but budge he would not. The worst of it was that I could not get the rest of the pearl buyers to back me up. Who was I, anyway, to know more about the sea and its ways 
than properly qualified captain. What was in their minds I knew. Of course the sea rose with the wind frightfully, and I shall never forget the first three seas the petite Jeanine shipped, after she had fallen off a vessel due at times with hove to, and first sea made a clean beach. The lifelines were only for the strong and weld, and little good were they even for them, when the women and children, the bananas and coconuts and pigs and tray boxes, the sick and the dying were swept along in the solid, screeching, groaning mass. The second sea filled the petite jean's deck, flush the rails, and her stern sank down and her bow tossed skyward. All the miserable dunnage of life and luggage poured aft, and it was a human torrent. They came head first, feet first, sideways, rolling over and over, twisting and squirming and writhing, crumpled up. Now and again one caught a grip of stanchion of, stanchion of rope, with the weight of the bodies behind tore such a grip loose. One man I noticed fetch up, head on and square on with the starboard bits, his head cracked like an egg. I saw that was coming, sprang up on top of the captain, and there into the mainsail itself. All crooned one of the Americans tried to follow me, but I was one jump ahead of them. And the American was swept away and over the stern like a piece of chaff. The Alcoon caught a spoke of the wheel and swung it behind it. He was strapping young Rikatora Vane. She must have weighed two hundred and fifty brought up against him and got an arm around his neck. He clutched the Kagranis demon with his other hand and just at that moment the schooner flung down to starboard. The rush of bodies and sea that was coming along, the port runway between the cabin and the rail turned abruptly and poured to starboard. Away they went, Og's schoon and steerman, and I swear I saw Hakun grin at me with a philosophic resignation as he cleared the rail and went under. The third sea, the biggest and the, of the three, did not do so much damage. By the time it arrived, nearly everybody was in the rigging, on deck perhaps a dozen gasping, half-drowned, half-stunned wrenches were rolling about or attempting to crawl into safety. They went by the board as did the wreckage of the two remaining boats. The other pearl buyers and myself between sea managed to get about fifteen women and children into the cabin and battered down. Little good it did those poor creatures in the end. Wind, out of all my experience, I could not have believed it possible for the wind to blow as it did. There was no describing it. How can one describe a nightmare? It was the same way with that wind. It tore the clothes off our bodies. I say tore them off, and I mean it. I'm not asking you to believe it. I'm merely telling you something that I saw and felt. There were times when I do not believe it myself. I went through it, and that is enough. One could not face that wind and live. It was a monstrous thing, and the most monstrous thing about it was that it was increased and continued to increase. Imagine countless millions and billions of tons of sand. Imagine sand tearing along at ninety, a hundred, a hundred and twenty, or any other number of miles per hour. Imagine further that sand to be invisible and palpable, yet to retain all the weight and density of sand. Do all this, and you might get a vague inkling of what it was 
what the wind was like. Perhaps sand is not the right comparison. Consider it mud, invisible and palpable, but heavy as mud. Nay, it goes beyond that. Consider every molecule of, molecule of air to be mud bank itself, then to try to imagine the multitudinous impact of mud banks. No, it is beyond me. Language might not adequately to express the ordinary conditions of life, but cannot possibly express any of the conditions so enormous, a blast of wind that would have been better had I stuck off my original intentions and not attempted a description. I will say this much. The sea, which had risen at first, was beaten down by that wind. More it seemed as if the whole ocean had been sucked up in the maw of the hurricane and hurled on through that portion of space which previously had been occupied by air. Of course, our canvas had gone long before, but Captain Otis had the petite jean, something I had never seen on a South Sea schooner, a sea anchor. It was a conical's canvas bag, the mouth of which was kept open by a huge loop of iron, and the sea anchor was bridled to something like a kite, so that it bit into the water as a kite bites into the air, but with a difference the sea anchor remained just under the surface of the ocean and in a perpendicular position, a long line in turn connected with it the schooner. As a result, Petit Jean rode bow on the wind and to what sea there was. The situation really would have been favorable had we not been put in the path of the storm. True, the wind itself tore our canvas out of the gaskets, jerked out our topmasts, and made a rifle of our running gear, but still we would have come through nicely had we not been square in front of the advancing storm center. That was what fixed us. I was in a state of stunned, numbed, and paralyzing collapse from the enduring the impact of the wind, and I think I was just about ready to give up and die when the center smote us. The blow we received was an absolute lull. There was no breath of air. The effect on one was sickening. Remembering that for hours we had been at a terrific muscular tension, withstanding that awful pressure of that wind, and then suddenly the pressure was removed. I know that I felt as though I was about to expand, to fly apart in all directions. It seemed as if every atom composing my body was repelling every other atom and was on the verge of rushing off irresistibly into space. But that lashed out only for a moment. Destruction was upon us. In the absence of the wind, the pressure of the sea rose and jumped it leaped and roared straight toward the clouds, and remembering from every point of the compass that inconceivable wind was blowing in toward the center column, the result was that the sea sprang up in every point, and the compass, there was no wind to check on them, popped up like corks released from the bottom of the pail of water. There was no system to them, no stability. They were hollow mechanical seas maniacal seas. They were eighty feet high, at least. They were not seas at all. They resembled no sea a man had ever seen. They were splashes, monstrous splashes. That is all. Splashes that were eighty feet high. Eighty. There were more than eighty. They were over our mastheads. They were sprouts, explosions. They were drunken. They fell anywhere, anyhow. 
They joisted one another, they collided, they rushed together and collapsed upon one another, or fell apart like a thousand waterfalls all at once. It was no ocean any man had ever dreamed of. That hurricane center, it was confusion thrice co-founded. It was anarchy, it was a hell pit of sea water gone mad. The Panim Chinin, I don't know. The heathen told me afterwards that he did not know. She was literally torn apart, ripped wide open and beaten into a pulp, smashed into kindling wood, and annihilated. When I came to this, it was in water swimming automatically. I was about two or thirds drowned. How I got there, I had no recollection. I remember seeing Petit Janine fly to pieces at what must have been an instant that my own consciousness was buffeted out of me. But there I was, with nothing to do but make the best of it. And in that best there was little promise. The wind was blowing again, and the sea was much smaller and more regular, and I knew that I had passed through the center uh, had passed through the center. Fortunately, there was no sharks about. The hurricane had dissipated, and the ravenous horde that had surrounded the death ship had fed off the dead. It was about midday when Petit Jinning went to pieces, and it must have been two hours afterwards when I was picked up with one of her hatch covers. Thick rain was driving at the time, and it was the merest chance that flung me and the hatch cover together. A short length of line was trailing from the rope handle, and I knew it was good, a good for a day at least, if sharks did not return. Three hours later, possibly a little longer, sticking close to the cover and with closed eyes, concentrating my whole soul upon the task of breathing, breathing enough air to keep me going, and at the same time avoiding breathing in enough water to drown me. It seemed to me that I heard voices. The rain had ceased, and wind and sea were easing marvelously, not twenty feet away from me. On another hatch cover were Captain Odoisas and the heathen. They were fighting over the possession of the cover. At least the Frenchman was. Palinuar, I heard him scream. At the same time, I saw him kick the Kanakas. Now Captain Odus had lost all his clothes, except his shoes, and they were heavy bargains. It was a cruel blow, for it had caught the heathen on the mouth, and the point of chin half stunning him. I looked for him to retaliate, but he contented himself with swimming about forlornly a safe ten feet away. Whenever a fling of the sea drew him closer, the Frenchman hanging on with his hands kicked out at him with both feet. Also, at the moment of driving each kick, he called the captain a black heathen. For two centimeters I had come over there and drowned you whilst you, you white beast, I yelled. The only reason I did not go was that I felt too tired. The very thought and effort to swim over was nauseating, so I called to the kraken to come to me and proceeded to share the hatch cover with him. Otu, he told me his name, pronounced Otu. Also, he told me that he was a native of Bora Bora, the most westernly of the society group, and I had learned afterward that he had gotten the hatch cover first and after some time encouraged Captain Odus had offered to share it with him, and had been kicked off for his pains. And that was how O2 and I first came together. 
He was no fighter. He was all sweetness and gentleness, a loving creature, though he stood nearly six feet tall and was muscled like a gladiator. He was no fighter, but he was also no coward. He had the heart of a lion, and in those years that followed, I have seen him run risks that would I would never dream of taking. What I mean is that while he was no fighter, and while he always avoided precipitating a row, he never ran away from trouble when it started, and it was a war shell when once Otto went into action. I shall never forget what he did to Bill King. It occurred to the German Samoan. Bill King, he hailed the champion heavyweight of the American Navy. He was a big brute of a man, veritable gorilla, one of those hard-hitting, rough-housing chaps, and clever with his fists as well. He pickled the quarry, and he kicked Odo twice and struck him once before. Odo fell, felt it too necessary to fight. I don't think it lasted four minutes, and at the end of which time Bill King was the unhappy professor of four broken ribs, a broken forearm, and a dislocated shoulder blade. O'Toole knew nothing of the scientific boxing. He was merely a manhandler, and Bill King was something like a three months in recovery from a bit of manhandling he received that afternoon at a pie beach. But I am running ahead of my yarn. We shared the hatch covered between us. We took turn and turn about, one lying flat on the cover of resting, while the other submerged to the neck merely held on with his hands. For two days and nights, spell and spell, on the cover in the water, we drifted over the ocean. Toward the last I was delirious most of the time, and there were times, too, when I heard Ojo babbling and raving in his native tongue. Our conscious immersion prevented us from dying of thirst, though the sea water and the sunshine gave us the prettiest imaginable combination of salt pickled and sunburn. In the end, Oda saved my life, for I came to lying on the beach twenty feet from the water, sheltered from the sun by a couple of coconut leaves. No one but Oto could have dragged me there and struck up the leaves for shade. He was lying beside me and went off again, and the time I came around, it was a cool starry night, and Oto was pressing a drinking coconut to my lips. We were the sole survivors of the Panitian. Captain Odus made must have succumbed to exhaustion, for several days later his hatch cover drifted ashore without him. Otu and I lived with the natives of the atoll for a week, when we were rescued by the French cruiser and taken to Tahiti. In the meantime, however, we performed the ceremony of exchanging names. In the South Sea, such a ceremony binds two men closer together than blood brothership. The initiation had been mine, and Otu was reportedly delighted when I suggested it. It is well, he said in Tahitian, for we have been mates together for two days on the lips of death. But death shuddered, I smiled. It was brave deed you did, master, he replied, and death was not vile enough to speak. Why do you master me, I demanded with a show of hurt feelings. We have exchanged names. To you I am Otu, and to me you are Charlie. And between you and me, forever, we are, and forever, we shall be Charlie, and I shall be Odo. It is the way of the custom, and when we die, if it does happen, that we live again somewhere beyond the stars and the sky, still shall you be Charlie to me, 
and I owed her to you. Yes, master, he answered, his eyes luminous and soft with joy. There you go, I cried indignantly. What does it matter what my lips utter, he argued. They are only my lips, but I think Oto always. Whenever I think of myself, I shall think of you. Whenever men call me by name, I shall think of you, and beyond the sky, and beyond the stars, and always and forever, you shall be Oto to me. It is well, master? I hid my smile and answered that it is well. We parted at Petit, and I remembered I remained ashore to recuperate, and he went on the cutter to his own island, Bora Bora. Six weeks later he was back, and I was surprised, for he had told me of his wife and said that he was returning to her and would give over sailing on far voyages. "'Where do you go, master?' he asked. After our first greeting, I shrugged my shoulders. It was a hard question. All the world was my answer. All the world, all the sea, and all the islands are in the sea. I will go with you, he said simply. My wife is dead. I never had a brother, but from what I have seen of other men's brothers, I doubt if any man has ever had a brother that was to him what Otto was to me. His, He was a brother and father and mother. He was a brother and father and mother as well, and this, oh, no, I lived a straighter and better man because of Otto. I cared little for other men, but had to live straight in Otto's eyes. Because of him, I dared not tarnish myself. He made me a ideal, and his ideal, compounding me, I feared, chiefly out of his own love and worship, and there were times when I stood close to the deep pitch of hell, and would have been taken the plunge had it not the thought of Odo restrained me. His pride in me entered into me until it became one of the major rules in my personal code to do nothing that would diminish that pride of his. Naturally, I did not lean right away and what his feelings were toward me. He never criticized, never censured, and slowly the exhaled place, pace I held in his eyes dawned upon me and slowly I grew to comprehend the hurt I could inflict upon him by being anything less than my best. For seventeen years we were together. For seventeen years he was at my shoulder, watching while I slept, nursing me through fever and wounds I, and receiving wounds and fighting for me. He signed on the sh same ship with me, and together we ranged the Pacific from Hawaii to Sydney Head and from Torres Straits to the Galapagos, we black-bearded from the new Hebrides to the Line Islands over the westward clear through the Louisades, New Britain, New Ireland, and New Hanover. We were wretched three times in Gilbert's, in the Santa Cruz group, and in the Fijis, and we traded and salvaged whenever a dollar promised in the way of pearl and pearl shell, copra, beach mirror, hawk bill, turtle shell, and stranded wrecks. It began in Petit, immediately after his announcement that he was going with me over, over the sea and the islands in the most midst thereof. There was a club in those days in Petit where the pearlers and traders and captains, riffraff of South Sea adventures, foregathered. The play ran high, and the drinks ran high, and I am very afraid that I kept late hours that were becoming or proper, 
No matter what the hour was when I left the club, there was Otto waiting for me to see me safely home. At first I smiled, next I chided him, then I told him flatly that I stood in need of no wet nursing. After that I did not see him when I came out of the club. Quite by accident, a week or so later, I discovered that he still saw me home, lurking across the streets among the shadows of the mango trees. What could I do? I know what I did do. Insensibly, I began to keep better hours on wet and stormy nights in the thick of the folly and the fun. The thought would persist in coming to me from Otto keeping his dreary vigil under the dripping mangoes. Truly, he made a better man of me, yet he was not straight-laced, and he knew nothing of the common Christian morality. All the people on Bora Bora were Christians, but he was a heathen, the only unbeliever on the island, a gross materialist who believed that when he died he was dead. He believed merely in fair play and square dealings, pretty meaningless in his code, was almost as serious as a wanton homicide, and I do believe that he respected a murderer more than a man given to small practice. Concerning me personally, he objected to my doing anything that was hurtful to me. Gambling was all right. He was an ardent gambler himself, but late hours, he explained, were bad for one's health. He had seen men who did not take care of themselves die of fever. He was no teetoddler and welcomed a sniff-nip at any time when it was wet work in the boats. On the other hand, he believed in liquor and moderation, and he had seen many men killed or disgraced by a square face or scotch. Otto had my welfare always at heart. He thought ahead for me, weighed my plans, and took a greater interest in them than I did myself. At first, when I was unaware of his interest of his in my affairs, I had to divine my interactions as, for instance, at Petit, when I contemplated going partners with a navish fellow countryman on Gusto Venture, I did not know he was a knave, nor did any white man in Patit, neither did Otto know, but he saw how thick we were getting, and found out for me, without any, without my asking him, native sailors from the ends of the sea knock about on the beach at Tahiti, and Otto, suspicious, merely went along till he had gathered sufficient data to justify his suspicions. Oh, it was a nice history of that Randolph Waters. I couldn't believe it when Otto first narrated it, but when I seethed it home to waiters, him gave in without murmur, and got away on the first steamer to Auckland. At first I am free to confess I couldn't help resenting Otto's poking his nose into my business, but I knew he was wholly unselfish, and soon I had to acknowledge his wisdom and discretion. He had his eyes open always to my main chance, and he was both keen-sighted and far-sighted. In times he became my counselor, until he knew more of my business than I did myself, and he really had my interest at heart more than I did. Mine was magnificent careless of youth, for I preferred romance to dollars and adventure to comfortably billets with all night in, so well that I had someone to look after me. I know that it had been not for Otto, I would not be here today.
of numerous instances let me give one. I had some experience in blackbirding before I went pearling and pomodus. Odo and I were on the beach in Samoa, and we were really on the beach and hard aground when my chance came to go as a recruiter on the Blackbird Brig. Odo signed on before the mast, and for the next half dozen years in many ships, we knocked about the wildest portions of Malaysia. Odo, too, in the, uh, Odo saw to it that he always pulled stroke oar in my boat. Our custom in recruiting labor was to land the recruiter on the beach. The covering boat always lay on its oars several hundred feet offshore, while the recruiter's boat, also lying on its oars, kept afloat on the edge of the beach. When I landed with the trade goods, leaving my steering sweep a peak, Odo left his stroke position and came into the stern sheets where a Winchester lay to hand under a flap of canvas. The boat crew also armed the cinders concealed under their canvas flaps that ran the length of the gunwales. While I was busy arguing and persuading and persuading the woolly-headed cannibals to come and labor on Queensland Plantation, Odo kept watch, and often his low voice warned me of suspicious actions and an impending treachery. Sometimes it was a quick shot from his rifle, knocked a nigger over, that was the first warning I received, and in my rush to the boat, his hand was always there to jerk me flying aboard. Once I remember on Santa Ana, the boat grounded just as the trouble began. A covering boat was dashing to our assistance, but several scores of savages would have wiped us out before it arrived. Odo took a flying leap ashore, dug both hands into the trade goods, and scattered tobacco, beads, and tomahawk knives and calicoes in all directions. This was too much for the woolly-headed, and while they scrambled for the treasures, the boat shoved clear and were aboard and forty feet away, and I got thirty recruits off of that beach in the next few in the next four hours. The particular instance I have in mind at Malta, on the most savage island in the early Solomons, the natives had been remarkably friendly, and how we were to know that the whole village had been talking up a collection of over two years with which to buy a white man's head. They the beggars all head hunters, and they especially esteemed a white man's head. The fellow who captured the head would receive the whole collection. As I say, they appeared very friendly, and on this day I was fully a hundred yards down the beach from the boat. Odo had cautioned me, and as usual I did not heed him. I came to grieve. The first I knew, a cloud of spears sailed over the mangroves and swamp at me. At least a dozen were sticking into me, and I started to run, but tripped over one that was fast in my calf and went down. The woolly heads made a run for me, and each with a long-handled fantail tomahawk with which to hack my head off. They were so eager for the prize that they got in one, they got in one other's way. In the confusion, I avoided several hacks by throwing myself left and right on the sand. Then Odo arrived. Odo the manhandler, in some way, he had gotten a hold of the heavy war club, and at close quarters, it was far more efficient weapon than a rifle. He was right in the thick of them, and so they could not spear him. While their tomahawks seemed worse than useless, he frightened. He fighted for me, 
and he was there in true berserker rage. The way he handled that club was amazing. Their skulls squashed like overripe oranges, and it wasn't until he had driven them back and picked me up in his arms and started to run that he received his first wound. He arrived in the boat with four spears thrust, got his Winchester, and with it got a man for every shot. Then we pulled aboard the schooner and doctored up. Seventeen years we are were together. He made me. I should be a supercargo. I should be a supercargo, a recruiter, or a memory had it not been for him. You spent your money and you got and got more and get more, he said one day. It is easy to get money now, but when you get old your money will be spent, and you will not be able to go out and get more. I know, master, I have studied the way of white men, and on the beaches are many old men who were young once and who could get money just like you. Now they are old and they have nothing, and they wait about for the young men like you to come ashore and buy drinks for them. The black boy is a slave on the plantations. He gets twenty dollars a year. He works hard. The overseer does not work hard. He rides a horse and watches the black boy work. He gets twelve hundred dollars a year. I am a sailor on the schooner. I get fifteen dollars a month. That is because I am a good sailor. I work hard. The captain has a double awning, and the drinks beer. And drinks beer out of long bottles. I have never seen him haul a rope or pull an oar. He gets one hundred and fifty dollars a month. I am a sailor. He is a navigator master. I think it would be very good for you to know navigation. Odo spurred me on to it. He sailed with me a second mate. He sailed with me as second mate on my first schooner, and he was far prouder of my command than I was myself. Later on, it was, The captain is well paid, master, but the ship is in keeping, and he is never free from the burden. It is the owner who must, who is better paid, and the owner who sits ashore with many servants and turns his money over. True, but a schooner costs $5,000. An old schooner at that, I objected. I should be an old man before I saved $5,000. There be a short way for white men to make money, he went on, pointing ashore at the coconut fringe beach. We were in the Solomons at the time, picking up a cargo of ivory nuts along the east coast of Gladencar. Between the river's mouth and the next is it two miles, he said. The flatland runs far back, and it is worth nothing now. Next year, who knows? Or the year after that, men will pay much money for that land. The anchor is good. Big steamers can lie close up, and you can buy the land four miles deep from this old chief for ten thousand sticks of tobacco, ten bottles of square face, and a cinder, which will cost you maybe one hundred dollars. Then you place the deed with the commissioner, and the next year or year after that, you sell and become the owner of a ship. I followed his lead, and his words came true, though in three years instead of two. Next came the Glassland deal on Guadalajara, on Guadalcar, 20,000 acres on a government 999 years lease that at a nominal sum. I owed the lease for precisely 90 days, then sold it to a company for half a fortune. Always it was with Otto, who looked ahead and saw the opportunity. He was responsible for his salvaging of the Doncaster, bought 
at an auction for a hundred pounds and clearing three thousands after that expense was paid he led me into the salvian plantation and the cocoa venture and up to Lou. we do not go seafaring so much as in the old days i was too well off i married and my standard of living rose but otto remained the same old time otto moving about the house and trailing through the office his wooden pipe in his mouth shilling an underskirt on his back and four shillings lava lava about his loins i could not get him to spend money there was no way of repaying him except with love and god knows he got all that in full measure from all of us the children worshipped him and if he had been a spoilable my wife would surely have been his undoing the children he he really was the one who showed them the way of their feet and the world practical he began by teaching them to walk he sat up with them when they were sick and one by one when they were scarcely toddlers he took them down to the lagoon and made them into amphibians he taught them more than i ever knew of the habits of fish and the ways of catching them in the bush it was the same thing at seven tom knew more about woodcraft than i ever dreamed existed at six mary went over the sliding rock without a quiver and i had seen strong men balk at that feat when frank had just turned six he would bring up shillings from the bottom of three fathoms my people in bora bora do not like heathens they are all christians and i do not like bora bora christians he said one day when i with the idea of getting him to spend some of that money was rightfully which was rightfully his had been trying to persuade him to take a visit to his own island in one of our schooners a special voyage which i had hoped to make a record-breaker in the matter of prodigal expense i say one of our schooners though legally at the time they belonged to me i struggled long with him to enter into the partnership we all have been partners from the day of the petit Janine went down he said at last but if your heart so wishes then shall we become partners by the law i have no work to do yet yet my expenses are large i drink and eat and smoke in plenty it costs much i know i do not pay for the planes of billards for i play on your table but till the money goes fishing on the reef is only a richest man's pleasure it is shocking the cost of hook and cotton line yes it is necessary that we be partners by law i need the money i shall get it from the head clerk in the office so the papers were made out and recorded a year later i was compelled to complain charlie said i you are a wicked old fraud you misery skinflint a miserable land crab we hold your share for the year and all our partnership has been thousands of dollars the head clerk has given me this paper it says that in the year you have drawn just eighty seven dollars and twenty cents is there any owing me he asked anxiously i tell you thousands and thousands i answered his face brightened as if with amused relief it is well said he see that the head clerk keeps good account of it when i want it i shall want it and there must be not a cent missing if there is he added fiercely after a pause it must come out of the clerk's wages and all that time and afterward learned his will drawn up by catherus and making me sole beneficiary lay in the american soul's safe but 
The end came, as the end must come to all human associations. It occurred in the Solomons when our wildest work had been done in the wild young days where we were once more principally on holiday, incidentally took after our holdings on Florida Island, and we and to look over the purling possibilities of the Millbury Pass, we were laying in Salvo, having run in to trade for curos. Now Salvo is alive with sharks, the custom of woolly-headed of burying their dead in the sea did not tend to discourage the sharks from making the adjacent waters a hanging out. It was my luck to be coming aboard in a tiny overloaded native canoe when the thing capsized. There were four woolly headeds and myself, or rather hanging to it. The schooner was a hundred yards away. I was hailing for the boat when one of the woolly heads began to scream, holding on to the end of the canoe. Both he and that portion of the canoe were dragged under several times, and when he loosened the clutch and disappeared, a shark had got him. The three remaining niggers tried to climb out of the water. Upon the bottom of the canoe, I yelled and cursed and struck at the nearest with my fist, but it was no use. They were in a blind funk. The canoe could barely have been supported, one of them. Under the three it upended and rolled sideways, throwing them back into the water. I abandoned the canoe and started to swim toward the schooner, expecting to be picked up by the boat before I got there. One of the niggers elected to come with me, and we swam along silently, side by side, now and again, putting our faces into the water and peering about for shark. The scream of the man who stayed by the canoe informed us that he had been taken. I peered into the water when I saw a big shark pass directly beneath me. It was a full sixteen feet in length. I saw the whole thing. He got the woolly head by the middle, and away he went. The poor devil, head and shoulders and arms, out of water all the time, screeching in a heart-rendering way. He was carried along in this fashion for several hundred feet, and when he was dragged beneath the surface, I swam doggedly on, hoping that was the last unattached, unattached shark, but there was another. Whether it was one that had attacked the natives earlier, or whether it was one that had made a good meal elsewhere, I did not know. At any rate, he was not in such a haste as the others. I could not swim so rapidly now, for a large part of my effort was devoted to keeping track of him. I watched him when he made his first attack. By good luck, I got both hands on his nose, and though a momentum early, nearly shoved me under, I managed to keep him off. He veered clear and began circling about again. A second time I escaped him by the same maneuver. The third rush was a miss on both sides. He sheared at a moment of my hands, should have landed on his nose, but his sandpaper hide I had on a sleeve of shirt scraped the skin off one arm, elbow to shoulder. By this time, I was played out and gave up hopes. The schooner was still two hundred feet away. My face was in the water, and I was watching him maneuver for another attempt, when I saw a brown body pass between us. It was Otto. Swim for the schooner, master, he said, and he spoke gaily, as though the affair was a mere lark. I know sharks, and the shark is my brother. I obeyed, swimming slowly on, while Otto swam about me, keeping always between me and the shark, foiling his rushes and encouraging me. 
the David tackle carried away, and they're rigging the falls, he explained. A minute or so later, and they went under to head off another attack. By the time the schooner was thirty feet away, I was about done for. I could scarcely move. They were heaving lines and lines at us from aboard, and they continually fell short. The shark, finding that it was receiving no hurt, had become bolder. Several times it had nearly got me, but each time Otto was there just the moment before it was too late. Of course, Otto could have saved himself at any time, but he stuck by me. Goodbye, Charlie. I'm finished. I just managed to grasp. I knew that the end had come, and that the moment I should throw my hands up and go down. But Otto laughed in my face, saying, I will show you a new trick. I will make that shark feel sick. He dropped in behind me, where the shark was preparing to come at me. A little more to the left, he called out. There is a line there on the water. To the left, master. To the left. I changed my course and struck out blindly. I was by that time barely conscious. As my hand closed the line, I heard an exclamation from on board, and I turned and looked, and there was no sign of Otto. The next instant he broke the next instant he broke surface, both hands were off at the wrist, and stumps bounding blood. Otto he called softly, and I could see in his gaze the love that thrilled in his voice. And then only at the very last of all years he called me by that name. Goodbye, Otto, he called. And then he was dragged under, and I was hauled aboard where I fainted in the captain's arm. And so passed Otto, who saved me and made me a man, and who saved me in the end. We met in the maw of a hurricane, and parted in the maw of a shark, with seventeen intervening years of com comradeship, the likes of which I dare to assert has never fallen between two men, the one brown and the one other white. If the Jehovah from his high place watching every sparrow fall, not least in his kingdom, shall be Otto, the one heathen of Bora Bora. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Fortations Laughter Tape Podcast. We're about a little over halfway done with the South Sea Tales. I will continue this next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.